eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome into the Hoist the Colors podcast, a victorious Hoist the Colors podcast, the second straight victory for the East Carolina Pirates. They wrap up the 2020 season with their biggest win of the Mike Houston era, a 52-38 triumph for the SMU Mustangs, and man, just a uh, a really solid all-around effort, especially in that first half. Probably the best first half I've seen ECU play in years, maybe ever. Uh, growing up in Greenville, watching ECU football, and of course, since I've covered the beat, starting back in 2010, I mean, it's just been a long time since East Carolina has played that good of a, an all-around first half. Uh, we'll get into the second half, what went wrong in the second half, and of course uh, SMU was able to get back into the game, but the Pirates led 45-7 to at the half. They win the game 52-38. to They finished the season 3-6 and overall, more importantly 3-5 and in the American, which we'll get into in a minute. SMU drops to 7-3. and They still have at least one more regular season game against the Houston Cougars, also might schedule another game as well but ECU on paper you look at it yeah three and five is it a big deal for those outside ECU's program no it's not and in fact it's pretty routine it's a less than average conference record but in terms of ECU and where they've been lately uh it's a major step in the right direction I thought ECU offensive coordinator Donnie Kirkpatrick said it best and of course he was here under the previous regime of Ruff McNeil's staff and not here with Scotty Montgomery but he was here when the program was really broken and Ruff McNeil was fired in 2015. At the time, uh, the Pirates were five and seven overall, three and five in league play. Uh, the past three, four years now under Scotty Montgomery, three years that they they only won two conference games once, only one conference game the other two seasons, and then last year under Mike Houston, only one conference win. So to take a step forward, win two two not only one more conference game but two more conference games. And probably, in reality, four conference games, if you count the Tulsa screw job, which has been talked about ad nauseum. But really, four conference wins, but three in 100% uh, official capacity. It is a major step in the right direction. And not only do you put SMU, or not only do you put South Florida and Temple behind you in the conference standings, but you get that signature win that has eluded the grasp of this program for so long. I mean, you look back at some of the numbers, numbers, I tweeted them out after the game, just what this win means for East Carolina. It's been such a long time since the Pirates have had a quality win over a really good team. Really the best win for the program since Scotty Montgomery's squad defeated NC State back in 2016. I think the Wolfpack that year finished 7-6. and six. But this this win... And as much as people like to beat NC State, to me, the more important games are the conference games. You've got to start making a move and putting some of these teams behind you, start showing progress in the conference, and ECU d- does that in the second year of the Mike Houston era. This is the first win over any team with a winning record since NC State in 2016 for ECU as a program. The first win over an AAC team that finished the season with a winning record since entering the league. 
The only other win that the Pirates had over a winning team at the time of the game was Tulsa in 2015, but that Tulsa team finished less than 500 after losing in a bowl game at 6-7. and seven. This is the first win to close the season for ECU since the Beefo Brady's Bowl to cap the 2013-10 win season. So it's almost been a decade, guys, since East Carolina fans could go into the offseason and experience uh, really good vibes of closing the, the season out with a victory. This is the first time the Pirates have, have had back-to-back wins over FBS competition since 2015, which is hard to believe. Again, Ruff McNeil's final season and the 3-5 and five lead record, as we talked about earlier, is the best since 2015. If you count the 4-4 four and four asterisk league record, uh, that would be the best um, also since 2014 when ECU went 5-3 and three in their first year of the American Conference. So uh, really to see the tangible results is the biggest thing. I, mean, we, I think we all kind of know ECU is making progress in several areas under Mike Houston. Uh, in the midseason stretch, losing to Navy without your starting quarterback, getting screwed to Tulsa, you know, a lot of people were, were having – they had promise at the time, but there was not the tangible wins. I mean, the record still read at the time, one win versus so many losses. And then you have the back-to-back disappointing outings uh, against Tulane and Cincinnati, especially against Tulane at home. Uh, you get the win over Temple, and then you're kind of thinking, well, you know, Temple didn't even have half his team. They were down to fifth-string quarterback. What does that really mean? But you come out today on Saturday in the season finale against a quality SMU team, and you outplay them from the start. And we can get more into the second half. We've got a lot of questions on the Hoist of Colors message board. A lot of big picture questions as we wrap up the 2020 season. But just so many good things uh, coming out of this game for the short term, for the long term. And we'll get into more of that as we uh, hit the stats and also dive into your questions. Looking at the stats of this game, East Carolina, just a huge day. Really in all phases, especially in that first half, of course, the Pirates get out to a 45-7 lead. They score on their on all seven possessions of the first half. Their first six drives ended in touchdown. Of course, a major kudos to Luke Larson, the freshman punter, who faked the punt and, you know, asking Mike Houston after the game, was that design, was that something they worked on? It kind of sounds like it was a situation where he has the option to keep it on that play, and the edge was so soft coming on the uh, the rugby-style punt that he just decided to keep it. And uh, I don't know if, if under normal circumstances you want your punter to lower the shoulder and work through four or five tacklers, but, I mean, when your punter is 250-plus pounds, as Luke Larson looks like he is, why not? He's a grown man. He's 28 years old, Australian freshman punter. Um, you know, just a tremendous play there. That ended up catapulting ECU three plays later. They find the end zone to keep Mitchell's seven or nine-yard run. That made it 7 up, and then it was off to the races from there for the Pirates as they continue to pour it on. Huge special teams play there. Tyler Sneed had a big uh, punt return that led to a short field. Jaira Wilson with the big strip and huge return that led to a short field. So just complimentary football all the way around for ECU in the first half. And, um, We'll get more into the second half and what went wrong there a little later. Look at the stat sheet. The Pirates outgained SMU 493 to 384. Uh, average yards per play on ECU's in 6.8. Average yards per play on SMU's in 4.9. Again, this is an SMU team that came to the game averaging 38 points per game and 508 yards of offense per game. ECU's young defense holds them to 384. Most importantly, in my opinion, the running game. SMU, Ulysses Bentley, the fourth, has been really solid in the running game this year. 70 net rushing yards for the Mustangs, 2.6 yards per carry. ECU runs for 160 yards on the ground, only 3.7 yards per carry, but SMU was able to really focus on stopping the run in the second half when it was pretty clear the Pirates were trying to, to run the clock out. ECU does only go 3 of 11 on third down. You want to see that number improve. But two of two on two huge fourth downs, uh, the fake punt, and also Darius Pennix converted a big fourth down in the, the first half. Uh, Pirates also turned the ball over twice on the kickoff return from Keaton Mitchell and then the muff fumble on Josiah Hatfield's uh, attempted reverse as Holton Aylers handed the football. I haven't watched a replay of that 
to see exactly what happened there, but uh, that's something you don't want to have happen in that situation. A lot of people question the play call. You know, a lot of people are also saying, why is ECU not being aggressive still with this big lead? Uh, so, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword there. They were trying to keep the, the pedal to the metal, but that's just a situation where if you're going to call that, you really have to 100% make sure you, you execute the handoff and don't have that happen. So I don't necessarily disagree with the call. Again, it's a situation where, you know, you probably don't want to make the call in that situation, but at the same time, if you do, over anything else before running with the football, you have to make sure you secure the exchange, which did not happen. Um, Mustangs go 5 of 13 on third down and uh, 1 of 2 on fourth down. ECU has uh, seven scores and eight red zone trips, including six touchdowns. Not settling for field goals, another crucial uh, part of this game for ECU. Pirates, again, were without Rajay Harris, the true freshman running back due to injury. According to Mike Houston, Keaton Mitchell was the leading rusher, 20 carries, 68 yards, and touchdown. Had a lot of success early. Josiah Hatfield, 34 yards on three carries. Darius Penix, only 32 yards on 11 carries in the touchdown. But I thought he had some of the toughest runs of the game. There were a few short conversions where there were nothing there, and he was able to power forward or shake off a couple tackles. I remember a third and one in particular. SMU sold out to stop the run. He broke two tackles and drew a face mask and got the first down. Holt Naylor is, in my opinion, one of his better games of the year. 20 of 29, 298 yards, four touchdowns. He was on the money. Uh, really not many passes at all in jeopardy of being intercepted. No picks on the day. Was sacked twice, both in the second half. Another huge day from Blake Pearl. Six catches, 152 yards, two touchdowns. Tyler Sneed, seven grabs, 92 yards, and a score. Uh, we saw C.J. Johnson make a catch on a fade for the score. He finished with two catches for 19 yards. Shane Calhoun, the tight end, had a 22-yard catch. It was also nice to see Cam Burnett make a 19-yard grab. Uh, after, uh, you know, subbing in. Again, Audio Matosho missed his second straight game with an injury. On the defensive side of the ball, the Pirates' safeties were everywhere. Jawan Powell finished with 10 tackles. Uh, Sean Dorso finished with eight. And then how about Jawan Powell also going in and out with injury probably three or four times, continued to battle through that. Really thought he showed a lot of heart. He was, he was really not 100% the second half of the year, but still managed to gut it out when he was pretty thin at safety. Uh, Jabra Wilson, again, the huge strip fumble uh, return for 39 yards. Uh, he had EC, he had ECU, one of their three takeaways on the day. And then Jaquan McMillan, man, the two picks late. Uh, you couldn't have played more textbook coverage on the final pick. He was with the guy the whole way. I, I think they were trying to throw a back shoulder there. or, or I don't know what Shane Buchel was doing, trying to make a play. But McMillan had it the whole way. He was step for step with the receiver, got the pick, and that was the game. So uh, with some sketchy moments in the second half, really thought the defense, even though they allowed some scoring drives, was able to step up when it counted, specifically with Jaquan McMillan, your top corner there, coming up with two great plays to seal the victory. So Pirates win at 52-38. They close the season at 3-6 three and six and 3-5. Three and five and American Athletic Conference play. All right, we got a ton of questions to get to, so we're going to dive right into that. Let's take a quick break first. You're listening to the Hoist of Colors podcast. We'll be right back. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, welcome back to the Hoist of Colors podcast. We're rolling right along. Our post-game podcast, our season finale post-game podcast, we'll probably have another uh, just season wrap-up, look-back uh, podcast next week, early next week. We're scheduled to talk to Mike Houston on Tuesday, I believe, for a 
postseason wrap-up press conference. So we'll, we'll have more big picture talk then. Um, but let's dive into this uh, on the Hoisted Colors message boards. GA196Cav, he's got a question. Where has that offensive game plan been all year? Minus the USF game. Biggest issue I have with the season in a nutshell. Yeah, you know, a lot of people, of course, it's been a often talked about uh, topic this season, the inconsistency of the offense. You know, it has felt like they've underperformed compared to expectations. You know, I think some of that is due to the inconsistency of the offensive line. Uh, I think also the receivers have been a little inconsistent. You've got youth at running back. Uh, Holton Aylers has been up and down at times. Um, so I think it's a combination of things. You know, as far as the game plan, though, today, I did think it was very noticeable that they, they really, in the first half especially, just kind of let it all hang out. I mean, you can point to the trick plays, et cetera. I mean, it's the last game of the season. You might as well use it, use it all or use some of it. But I just thought the team looked so free and confident. And I don't know if it was the success they had against SMU last year. You know, I did like this matchup going in because SMU's defensive front is not one that can overwhelm you at this point. And we know how how not bad ECU's offensive line is, but how much they can struggle with a really good defensive front. So I thought this was a good matchup. And I think maybe that gives Holton Aylers and the rest of the offense confidence. And And let's be honest, you can call a lot better plays when you know your offensive line can protect. I thought that made a difference. You mentioned the USF game. USF is pretty small up front as well, even though they do have speed. So I think that's a big difference. You know, Tulsa was the other good game plan I thought they had. But Tulsa doesn't really blitz a lot, and they only rush three or four guys. So, you know, I think a lot of this does come come down to your offensive line. You know, when they can protect, I think you can call a much better game. But I do think there were things they called today that, you know, the, the – all the reverses we saw at the Josiah Hatfield, of course, the one that didn't work out was sticking to people's minds. But, you know, that's a play that usually, and you don't want to abuse it, but that's a play that gets you 8 to 15 yards seemingly every time and probably a play you need to run two or three times a game. We saw the, the pass to the tight end, and it was, you know, it was open. But not only was it open, but I thought Shane Calhoun made a very tough catch in traffic. So that was good to see. We saw Jeremy Lewis get targeted as well. Uh, even though it was for a minimal game. So I just thought we saw a much better consistency, rhythm, et cetera, today. And, um, you know, as far as where has that been all year, maybe the matchups haven't been there. Maybe the execution hasn't been there uh, again. But I did think it, there was a noticeable difference in kind of the style and rhythm of play today. Maybe it was just confidence. Maybe it was just being loose. You know, what? I again, I haven't been able to put my finger on it all year. And I'm not a football guru. Um I try to feel like I know the game more than, than your average fan, but at the same time, you know, football is a tough game to gauge sometimes. I mean, there's a reason SMU is a two-touchdown favorite going into the game. Um, so it's just a, a funny game. I do think, the you know, going to the offseason, the main focus for ECU is not only development, but how can we make this offense more consistent because they do have to start being more consistent and uh, keep, continue to – improve on producing on a play-in, play-out basis, game-in, game-out basis. To the next set of questions, Berg Pirate, he has a few for us. One, are the seniors that were honored today the only seniors not coming back next year? I mean, that is the intention right now. I think the way I've heard it is the guys who were honored today are definitely not uh, going to come back next year. They've already made that decision. Now you've got the next realm of players who have to make that decision. Now the, the initial word is that they do want to come back. They are Definitely leaving the door open to coming back. But more importantly now, you've kind of got to go through the next uh, few weeks, kind of see how things develop. Uh, I do think each of these guys who did not declare uh, to, to leave today do want to play football next year. Now it's just a matter of, you know, hey, how does spring ball go? Where do I sit on the depth chart? That sort of thing. I mean, they're, they're, you know, there are going to be some guys that, that are upperclassmen that want to know where they stand before maybe making that final decision um, based on on what exactly they want to do next year. So I, I'm not going to say that all the people who weren't honored today that are seniors will definitely be back next year, but I think at this point that is their intention, and the majority of them do intend to uh, want to return to ECU. But that's something we'll continue to follow, and that'll be a big storyline all offseason as we see how the roster kind of shapes up. 
Uh, number two, the AAC officials have been horrific all year. Why doesn't the NCAA hire and train referees instead of the conferences so they are more consistent? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of money tied up in NCAA football. You would think that, uh, you know, they would want their product to be as consistent as possible. But at the same time, you know, the conferences kind of run college football on their own. We talked about this ad nauseum, too. So maybe it's more up to the conferences to be the ones who hire their officials more uh, full-time and train them year-round, kind of like the NFL has done a better job of lately. But, you know, the officials have a tough job. I mean, listen, I love to get on the officials. But on Twitter, you know, at at times I do it almost over the top just because, I don't know, I mean, it's easy to do. It's kind of what Twitter is for. But they have a tough job. I mean, to call some of this stuff live is next to impossible. But they do have replay for the instances that we're seeing, and they're still getting the call wrong. Um, whether it's the ruling of the play today where they can't throw an intentional grounding call after the replay, I, I believe in the NFL you can, upon a replay, change a call depending on the situation. I think intentional grounding is one of those. So that that's a call that they need to look into making an adjustment to. Back to your original question, I don't know. I mean, that's just AAC officiating has always been horrible. And most college officiating is not good or consistent. And it just depends on what team you follow. The, the same fan the fan bases usually say the same thing. So uh, it's disappointing, but it kind of is what it is. Like today, if you're East Carolina, you play well enough to take human error out of the, 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 the win slash loss result. And that's what ECU did. They weren't able to do that at Tulsa, fair or not, but today they did, and uh, hopefully they can do that more going forward. Number three, will the team have a final victory dinner this week? What are the chances someone asks about it during the Tuesday press conference? Uh, Yeah, I I imagine knowing Mike Houston, there's no way that he's going to let some peanut butter pie and a victory dinner go by the wayside based on, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the adversity this team has faced. They'll get together. I believe for a final time on Sunday, they'll have that victory dinner and go out right. As far as the chances about it being asked, I would say 60 to 70% that somebody will ask about the victory dinner or peanut butter pie because that just seems to be how these things go. ECU Dave 198, he asks, is our plan going to be this, going to be to hope the same players get bigger slash better or try to replace them with new players in regards to offensive line, linebacker, wide receiver? I think it's both. I mean, I think you've got to develop first and foremost. And then secondly, you've got to recruit to continue to increase competition, to continue to increase depth and continue to increase talent. I think you look at linebacker, you know, they are bringing in the Juco, Jacoby Simpson. Uh, I think with what they have returning there, you know, I think that you just kind of continue to hope those guys get better. And I thought they did get better throughout the season. I mean, you've got Xavier Bit, uh, Xavier Smith, uh, Bruce Bivens, um, Aaron Ramsour, potentially all returning. You know, we know Xavier Smith's going to be back. Uh, Miles Berry will be back as an upperclassman. And so you just got a lot of seniors there, plus Simpson, plus Taylor Jackson, plus Eric Dotter, plus Alex Angus. I think inside linebacker all of a sudden looks pretty deep, especially if Ramsour and Bivens return. O-line, we all know the story there. You can never have enough depth. You know, we'll see what happens with Noah Henderson, but the continued development of uh, the young guys like Trent Holler, uh, even Bailey Malovic as a former Juco recruit, and Nashad Strother I think is going to be critical. Uh, Isaiah Foote, Jaquez Powell, uh, Walt Stribling, all those underclassmen have to continue to develop. But you also want to bring in some older kids. I know they're looking at the Juco route, the grad transfer route, to continue to solidify that in case they get hit with the injury bug again like they did this year. You know, are Sean Bailey – are um, Fernando Fry? Are, are all these guys going to return? Or Justin, is Justin Chase going to return? I mean, if all three of those seniors return, all of a sudden you you got a pretty deep offensive line that has a lot of experience. You know, you got to continue to grow up. Avery Jones at left guard, he looks like a promising starter for the foreseeable future. So, lots of positives there. And at wide receiver, I think you hope that the the returning upperclassmen, C.J. Johnson, Blake Prohl, uh, Tyler Snead continued to develop. Cam Burnett had some solid minutes this year. Uh, also, Audio Matosho looks like he'll be back. So you continue to grow that group up. 
And then you bring the younger group along, the guys you got committed now, Theodore Lockley, um, Troy Lewis, Javante Sherman, and you continue to get those guys ready. So I, I just think it's a little bit of everything in regards to your question. They, they do want to continue to patch up the secondary. I don't think they're sold on the depth there, as some think, especially at safety. they got to continue to bring in some bodies there. So JUCO help or, or grad transfer help, I think you'll see that on the offensive line and in the secondary. Um, somebody also asked about the rush in outside linebacker spot. feel like that's a big big missing piece of the defense. Any rumbling, they move Jeremy Lewis. Uh, very crowded room, the tight end room for the production that we have. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, if it were me and if Ryan Jones comes in and if Travion Freshwater can make the move to, to, to tight end uh, fairly well and you get Jacob Coleman, who's a commitment in at tight end, all of a sudden that tight end room is looking pretty deep with Shane Calhoun, uh, Zach Bird coming back. And Jeremy Lewis was originally recruited as kind of a stand-up defensive end type. And right now that position – I think is lacking some pass rush, and if Jeremy Lewis can make the move, I wouldn't mind seeing it. Now, I honestly have not been able to see practice for a year and a half now, really. And, uh, you know, that's taken away some of my knowledge due to the pandemic as far as where guys may fit in uh, because I'm not able to see them on the field, see them up close, and really make a fair evaluation of where they are, you know, as far as quick twitch ability, movement skills, all that type of stuff that goes into a position change. Um, I do think Jeremy Lewis could make the change. It's just a matter of would he be on board with it. I think he could play stand-up outside linebacker with his quickness and size, and I think it would be a good fit. It just depends on what the coaching staff wants to do. Uh, 08 Pirate, he asks, is Rajay Harris injured? Yes, uh, Rajay Harris has, has an injury right now. Uh, that's why he did not play today. It's, it's not believed to be anything serious, according to Mike Houston, but he should. Uh, continue to rehab over the next few weeks and be 100%. About the time they return for winter workouts and spring ball. It just sounds like the wear and tear got to him, and he really tried to give it a go and just was not able to um, with the uh, the pain this week. Diamond Buck 312 he asked a few times this season, we have started strong out of the gates, but the offense goes cold in the second half. How do we keep up the pressure when other teams make their adjustments? Well, that's the... That's the golden age question, right? And, and, you know, other teams make their adjustments. They, their coaching staffs get paid to make adjustments just as ECU staff does. So a lot of it does come down to a little bit of the X's and O's matchup. A lot of it, too, is momentum and confidence. I still think in a game like this, ECU struggles with, hey, we've never been in this position where we're beating a really good team by a lot of points. What the hell do we do? I mean, I'm going to be honest. I bet that was the thought and not intentionally – but naturally, for a lot of these young guys who have never been in the situation at the college level, I mean, this is another phase in, in learning how to win. And I really didn't see much of a, a change in terms of philosophy, especially defensively. They still continue to come after Shane Buchel. I do think the offense was a little conservative to start the first series or two of the second half. And um, I do think they opened it up in that third series. They threw the ball two out of three downs, um, ran it on second and long, and both of the passes were incomplete. Then they only took a minute off the clock. SMU went down, I think, and scored again. So, you know, it's kind of a – I'm not going to say a tough situation to be in when you're up 45-7, but it's kind of a new situation to be in where you have to learn how to play there where you do naturally have to play somewhat conservative because you don't want to run, you know, plays that are vulnerable to turnovers like the reverse play that was fumbled by Hatfield and Aylers. Um, because that leads to a, a bigger chance of a turnover, but you do want to stay as aggressive as possible without being completely vanilla and predictable. So there is a balance you have to strike there. And honestly, it's been it's been pretty long since this coaching staff would could be in that position. Back to their days at JMU, they were in it a lot, blowing out a lot of teams in the CAA um, with pretty uh, with a pretty good football team. So. You know, I'm sure it was an adjustment for the coaching staff. And I thought in the fourth quarter, we especially started to see some um, some better plays as far as offensively. You know, the deep passes from Aylers to Pro, which a lot of that came down to execution in one-on-one situations. And that was good to see because if they don't hit some of those passes with SMU playing a lot of guys in the box and pretty tight coverage, then it could be a much different result at the end of the day. I, didn't, I don't know if I really answered your question, but I think – 
you know, it's just a situation where ECU has to continue as a young team to mature and, and be more consistent. Uh, Buck Wild, 17. Did SMU score any second-half points before uh, Rick DeBrayu was ejected? By the way, was that another bogus call or was it legit? Uh, they had scored before that. As far as uh, it looked, I have not seen a replay of it, so I don't want to comment on it too much, but it looked live like it was he did lead with the helmet. You know, it wasn't egregious, I thought. I mean, Buchel earlier in the game had taken off on a run like that and didn't slide. I thought DeBrayu kind of hit him as he was going to a slide, so I don't think it was egregious. And um, it it kind of was what it was. I mean, the, the most ridiculous thing, in my opinion, is that DeBrayu uh, has to miss the first half of next year's season opener. I mean, what good does that do? I mean, you, you sit a guy... I mean, why not just make a guy go through a review course on targeting or something like that? There's no need for him to have to sit freaking eight to nine months later uh, after the initial foul. I mean, that's just a, a little ridiculous. So, But, hey, the NCAA is going to NCAA, and it is what it is, and hopefully he can learn from that situation and not have it happen again. All right, continuing with your question, ECU Pirates backwards, he asks, other than the obvious win, what were you most impressed with? Um, I mean, there are so many things. I think, I think the defense, honestly. I mean, the offensive play calling, the the play of Holt Naylor's, Blake Pearl, Tyler Sneed made some incredible catches. I mean, there there are a lot of different directions you can go with here. But the defense, honestly, I mean, I I thought they dominated a good chunk of the game. And you look up at the end of the day, SMU has 38 points. But, you know, ECU gave him a free touchdown with basically with the Keaton Mitchell fumble um and they gave him some extra possessions in the second half I thought the defense if you hold SMU an offense like that to less than 400 yards they were able to pick off Shane Buchel twice he had only thrown four picks coming into the game in nine games Jaquan McMillan just made some amazing plays in that fourth quarter so I'm gonna go with the defense I mean I think you look at the Temple game and you're like yeah they played well but it was against a fifth string quarterback what does that really mean but then they follow that up with a really good performance against an SMU offense. And again, they give up 38 points. It doesn't look that great. But this is an elite SMU offense. They're averaging 38 points a game and averaging more than 500 yards a game on offense. So to do what they did, hold them to 384, I thought was extremely impressive. And uh, that that's my biggest takeaway, especially with such a young team, man. I mean, you were out there. You were playing pretty much all underclassmen in the secondary. Uh, Malik Fleming, Jaquan McMillan, Nolan Johnson, they're all sophomore cornerbacks. Sean Dorsos is a sophomore safety. Uh, Juwan Powell is a, a redshirt freshman safety. David Laney is a true freshman safety. Jaira Wilson is a, a, a redshirt sophomore uh, nickel linebacker. So, again, uh, Tegan Wilkes a true freshman. So, you have all underclassmen in the secondary. You've got all underclassmen on the defensive line, except for Chris Willis. So just a lot to to be excited with this defense. I thought they really closed the season uh, with a bang these last two games. Uh, K-Gun, he asked, why did Mike Houston not get Mason Garcia some reps? Uh, th- this just was not the game to get Mason Garcia reps. Now, 45-7 at halftime, we did go from saying, hey, maybe you get even a guy like Kate Norman in his final game in Dowdy Pickle Stadium in, to man, you, you absolutely cannot put in uh, another quarterback right now. I mean, Holton played great. SMU just scored too much in the second half. Now, if you if you would have gone through the fourth quarter up fifty-two to fourteen, then yes, you get Mason Garcia or Caden Norman or Alex Flynn, somebody reps. But this was not the game. It just the, the tide turned too much in the second half to warrant uh, getting Mason Garcia some reps. Um, Kagan, a lot of people responded to his post saying, you know, at what point would you put in Garcia? He said the start of the third quarter would have been a decent time as an example or the drive after we scored to go back up 28. You know, again, I just think you you can't script a series that early in the half. I mean, you can for Mason Garcia to go in if if you're super intent on him playing, but the game was still hanging in the balance. It was not over at that point. So, uh, yeah, I'm fine with rolling with Holt Naylor's for the entirety of uh, the SMU game. Now, the Temple game is another story, but that's well documented how I feel about that. ECU Jackie Moon, he's got a couple questions. 
how much does this win help recruiting for next year? You know, I'm not going to say it's going to make or break this recruiting class. I think the most important thing with this win is that, you know, it allows you to really solidify this class. I mean, if you have some commitment to, and I'm not saying they were wavering because I haven't heard anything about that, but if you have some commitments who are saying, you know, I hear a lot about this ECU turnaround or Mike Houston, but they're two and six, now two and seven after losing to SMU. Maybe I'll look around. All of a sudden, they, they see this, this victory and they see them pounding a pretty good team and they see ECU moving up in the conference standings. That's a lot you can sell if you're Mike Houston's staff to your current commitments and also to any guys that you may be looking at signing late or signing in February. So I think it helps solidify this class. I don't think it's going to make or break it. As far as next year, the 2021 class, I do think it helps with momentum for sure. You know, a local kid like Michael Allen from Rose, who's a national caliber recruit, you can really say to him, hey, we're making progress. Here's a look at all these things we're accomplishing. Think about what we can accomplish when players like you join our program in a couple of years as we continue to grow this thing with more local kids like Holton Naylor, C.J. Johnson, Jeremy Lewis, Michael Allen, etc. So uh, I think it helps. I don't think it makes or breaks anything. I think if you have a 6-3 and three record versus 3-6, and six, then that's the type of year that can can really make recruiting. If you have a 1-8 a or 0-9 record, that can break recruiting. I think this is kind of a, you know, keep recruiting where it's at, help solidify things. I think the year you go back to a bowl game, the year you start packing Dowdy Ficklin again, you know, knock on wood, we can do that in 2021. And you can get guys on campus, which is so huge for ECU. That's when you start to see major strides made in recruiting. I think that can happen as early as the 2021 season. And then that makes a huge impact for the latter part of the 2022 and 2023 class. But I think we're still a little bit ways away from seeing ECU recruiting-wise really, again, start to compete with the, the big boys, so to speak. You know, when I first started covering recruiting consistently, this was back in 2012, uh, when Ralph McNeil was really having a lot of success and momentum, you know, it it wasn't routine that ECU was beating like an NC State in North Carolina on the recruiting trail, but ECU was consistently in the mix and beating some of those teams every now and then. And right now, you know, ECU is just not the caliber of a program where you're going to beat a North Carolina, you know, nine times out of ten, you're going to lose that battle unless you have some sort of extenuating circumstance in your favor. Now, back then, when I first started covering it, there were more situations where you could get a kid uh, out of the Raleigh area over some ACC schools. And that was because ECU was winning. They could get kids on visit. They could pack the stadium. They could sell their game day atmosphere, which was the best in the state at the time. And ECU can get back to that with the right progress. And I think they're on their way. But I just think right now, it's more important to recruit the right type of kids retain them, develop them. And once you get this thing back rolling again, then you'll start to get the be- the better talent more consistently. And um, then your roster is in better shape, and then it becomes much more easy to sustain a program. But right now, it's all about finding the right gyms, retaining, developing, and uh, continue to win that way. And eventually the tide will turn to where you're getting um, big-time caliber recruits, and you have a top 55, top 50 recruiting class, which is what the top teams in the American have right now, like a Cincinnati, Memphis, SMU, etc. Uh, how long of a break do coaches get before getting right back to recruiting? Well, they're in the office again on Sunday to break down the film, to meet with players, exit interviews, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then they, are, they dive into recruiting really next week, uh, early next week, middle of next week. They will dive right in and uh, go into evaluation mode, and it'll pretty just due to the short turnaround. I mean, it's November 28th as we record this. Signing day is December 16th, so they don't have any time off right now as far as uh, to take off and and uh, do that sort of stuff. It'll be after signing day on December 18th when they can really take a breath, and maybe it is a good thing they don't have a game schedule for December 5th because they can really dive into recruiting now and uh, solidify this class, build targets for uh, the February signing period. But it won't be till around Christmas that they really get some uh, time away. But uh, it'll be right back into recruiting starting early next week. Uh, number three from ECU, Jackie Moon. He asked, when do the players start back and what will the winter uh, routine 
workout look like? Uh, the players are scheduled to be back January 14th is the uh, return date. Again, that's a long layoff from late November to January 14th. So uh, Big John has put a kind of a, a plan together for select players as they go home. Uh, they do want those guys to stay in shape as much as possible. I mean, they're not going to stay in elite shape just because you don't do that unless you're around the training staff. But I do know there's, a, I believe, an eight-week uh, block upon their return that Mike Houston and John Williams have really drawn up a solid plan to get after it as much as possible uh, in the weight room uh, over those eight weeks upon the return going into spring practice. And, and that'll be the most critical two-month stretch uh, to get those guys in as good a shape possible going into spring ball and then after spring ball to keep them into shape going into the summer. Uh, I, I just hope they can get a full, full offseason in for all these young guys who need it who have been robbed of it. Uh, I do think they'll find a way to get it in and um, or as much as possible in, and I think that'll just make a huge deal. But hopefully the players can take up some self-responsibility on their own over this month and a half off over the coming holidays and uh, stay in some pretty good shape for uh, the return because I don't think John Williams is going to be messing, up, messing around much come mid-January. All right, uh, next set of questions here. Um... Hyde Pirate, he's got four for, for us, and we'll we'll answer Hyde's, and that'll wrap up our show. Uh, Hyde says, "What which freshman D line, uh, defensive lineman impressed you the most this season?" Well, I mean, where to begin? There is a a whole lot of them. Uh, you know, honestly, we saw probably six or seven true freshman defensive linemen. We saw multiple more retro freshmen defensive lineman uh like an Emmanuel Hickman and even though Rick Diabreu is a, a true sophomore he's almost like a redshirt freshman defensive lineman but as far as the true freshman I mean how can you not say Elijah Morris I mean he played so many snaps seven consecutive starts and nose tackle to close the year consistent reliable dependable and this is without spring practice so I think he's going to continue to get better you know I think his long-term upside maybe isn't quite as big as some of the other scholarship kids in the program, but I, I, I think he'll continue to get better and uh, just be extremely dependable. You know, I look at a guy like Xavier McIver, and I think he's only scratching the surface of what he can be uh, just as a player. I mean, I think he is so strong and explosive, and he's just kind of learning what he can do right now. I was impressed by him. Uh, I think Deontay Johnson, honestly, even though he only played in a couple games, extremely, extremely impressive for the little playing time he got. I, I think the interior defensive line looks really good for the foreseeable future. And, um, you know, Rick Abreu, a lot of people have asked about him potentially sliding the defensive end. I think they like him at, at, at three technique because of his quickness on the interior. You know, could he stay at his current weight or maybe slim down a little bit and play on the edge? Probably so. But I think at the same time, he provides a different dynamic at three technique. So that'll be something they look at in the offseason, but a lot of freshman defensive linemen uh, impressed me for sure. Uh, Hyde Pirate also says Jason Shuford and Deontay Johnson have that Limble Joseph size as true freshmen. Impressive. Yeah, Limble, man, he was a big he, he was a big old boy as a freshman, and going back and watching that 2007 season, he really was not developed at all uh, physically, and you know, Deontay Johnson and Shuford do kind of remind me of that. They had the you know, the big belly, big body. And I think as they get into the weight room, you know, they had the big chest too. The, when you have that big barrel chest and kind of the, the wide stocky build, that kind of looks like a true interior defensive lineman. I think both those guys have that. Uh, I think another year of development, you know, you look at how much progress Deontay Johnson made just in the season. Uh, I, saw, I did see him in preseason camp, you know, one of the first days of, of workouts. And the progress he made from his body from then when he was pretty much totally out of shape to the end of the season was pretty remarkable. Now you give a guy like that a full off season, and I think it just becomes even better. So I think both those guys, you know, I think even a Kazai Everett, you know, he's only a redshirt freshman. He'll still be a redshirt freshman next year. I think even he from a full off season can develop. A Sarad Ware, a guy who, who didn't play this year but has potential. Um... You know, Jason Romero, Kareem Stinson, the defensive end, they need to get stronger, but I think they have the natural athleticism uh, 
to really make an impact as pass rushers in time. These guys, all of them just need a full offseason, which, you know, they should be able to get in 2021. Uh, Hyde Pirates, third question, what is your way too early projected starting offensive line for next year? You know, again, a lot of this is dependent upon if Sean Bailey, uh, Justin Chase, Fernando Fry, if all those guys return, that that completely changes the the dynamic. You know, I I think – so let's assume they do return. I think on paper with the way – Fernando Fry closed the season. I'll be the first to admit, you know, late season, I think after the Cincinnati or Tulane game, I believe it was after Tulane game, I said they should probably go to Trent Holler and build for the future. But Fernando has played tremendously down the stretch. So, I, you know, I think if he comes back, you have to start him at center. Um, I think there's there will probably be, you know, Avery Jones is probably your starting left guard. You know that. I mean, I think those two spots would be pretty much locked in. You know, right guard, Sean Bailey, again, another guy who came on strong towards the end of the year, another veteran guy. But Trent Holler, I think, could push him for a starting job. So I think that would be a a position battle right there, Trent Holler versus Sean Bailey. You know, tackle, uh, Noah Henderson, does he get back to full full health? If so, I think he's a strong candidate to start at right tackle. Maybe Justin Chase and Noah Henderson kind of battle it out for right tackle like they did in the preseason this year before Henderson went down. And then left tackle, can Bailey Malovic make the leap in the weight room that if he gets if he goes from 260 to near 2, 285, 290, all of a sudden you've got a really high-caliber left tackle with his athleticism combined with improved strength. So uh, if Malovic has the type of year he's capable of having in the, in the weight room in the offseason, I think he could push for that position. Also would not be surprised with Deontay Smith moving to the NFL, that the Pirates go to the transfer portal or go to the um, JUCO ranks to bring in a left tackle or an offensive tackle. I think that they've got to continue to improve the depth of tackle. Walt Stribling, in my opinion, is still probably a year or two away. He needs to develop physically. Uh, he, he's just, he, he, you know, he played well against Temple, but he's just a young guy that needs time to develop. Um so I think that's kind of what you're looking at. I do think you'll you'll see at least two, if not three, uh, JUCO or transfers brought in uh, this offseason based on what I'm hearing. And again, a lot of this is dependent upon what happens with Fry, Bailey, and also uh, Justin Chase. If all those guys return, then the, the need to bring in so many transfers might not be as great. But if two of them or whatever decide to move on, then that changes the, the dynamic Entirely, but right now it does look like all of them intend to return. All right, final question from Hyde Pirate. Final question on the podcast. Any potential position changes this offseason besides Demetrius Mooney and Alex Angus? Yeah, you know, we've heard Demetrius Mooney might be a candidate to go to Sam Linebacker. That's something that's not official right now. He's still working out with the uh, the running backs pregame today. Alex Angus has moved to inside linebacker. You know, what do they do at safety? Do they keep do they keep Tegan Wilk at Sam? Do they keep him at safety? I mean, he's worked at both this year. He started at Sam, moved back to safety the last few weeks with some depth concerns there. If Gerard Stringer comes back at Sam linebacker, that uh, provides you some versatility there because all, all of a sudden then you have um, not only uh, Jaira Wilson, but you've got Gerard Stringer, a former two-year starter. Uh, at, at Sam. So I think you've got some options there on the defensive side of the ball. You know, do they look at making a Jeremy Lewis a potential rush linebacker? Um, you know, I've always said, and somebody somebody brought up a good question earlier this week, and I haven't seen enough of him in practice to know, but Henry Garrison, a Juco transfer defensive end, didn't really play much defensive end this year. You know, it was more of a developmental year. and But he almost looks like an offensive tackle. You know, he's six six. 270. Uh, if he could gain some weight, you know, he's played quarterback and tight end in the past. Maybe he could play offensive tackle. Uh, you look at D'Angelo McKinney, another big kid, 6'4", 280. There's been talk of maybe moving him to offensive tackle in the offseason. I've heard he wants to stay on defense. So, uh, you know, do you move Demel Hickman, a cornerback, to safety? There's just a lot of questions there. A lot of, you know, Taylor Jackson works at inside linebacker. Could he move to Sam if needed? I mean, there, there's so many so many things that, in my opinion, will get worked out in, in spring practice and really when the coaches have 
plenty of time to evaluate these guys uh, full-time in non-pressure situations in terms of really getting the chance to see all the guys on the roster when they're not preparing for a game. I think that's when you see more position changes and you see more changes like this. So uh, I think a lot of that will be decided in the spring. I do think there are some candidates to move around, especially with so many young guys, and that's something that will happen in time. I'm really hoping come spring we can be back on the field at least in some sort of capacity to see the guys in person because it's hard to make these calls for our, from our vantage point as a reporter when we're not able to see the team in action outside of game day. So I don't know if that'll happen come March, come time for spring ball when we can actually get back on the field and see some things up close in person, but we'll see. Uh, hopefully we can get a vaccine out and get back to how the, the good old days used to be as far as covering practice, but we'll see what that going forward. All right. Thanks Hyde Pirate for our questions. That'll do it for our questions on the Hoist of Colors podcast. And I'll do it for our podcast. It's hard to believe the 2020 season has come and gone for East Carolina. It seems like just yesterday we were talking about whether or not there would be a season at all. And honestly, it's, it's pretty incredible outside of the first few games that were canceled that once ECU kicked the ball off on September 26th versus UCF, they did not have a game postponed or canceled due to COVID-19 despite every other team in the American I'm pretty sure of this had a game moved or altered at some point due to COVID-19 but the Pirates were able to get all nine games in as scheduled which is, is pretty remarkable this day and age as you look at the schedule each week in college football so props to the Pirates for sticking to their protocols for following them for staying as disciplined as possible and for having some luck on their side. I mean, let's be honest, there is some luck involved with this stuff. Uh, There's only so much you can control. But uh, I'm just thankful we got to watch Pirate football in 2020. There were ups, there were downs, but I I think there's a lot of bright days ahead. Young football team, coaching staff that's learning their roster, developing their roster. And I think we've seen progress made from from year one of Mike Houston to year two. Uh, And I think we'll continue to see that progress made in year three, especially with a full off season for these guys to really develop this roster. So thanks to everybody for listening to the podcast. This is our first year doing the pod. Of course, we'll continue to bring all sorts of uh, news and nuggets to hoistacolors.net. Again, we'll have a season wrap up early next week. We'll get somebody on as a co-host. We'll also have recruiting podcasts and other types of pod. We'll have some basketball podcasts once the Pirates get deeper into non-conference and conference play. Again, take advantage of our 75% off sale if you're a, a member on the fence. Uh, new members can sign up 75% off to hoistacolors.net through December 1st. Our best deal of, the, deal of the year, I promise you, we won't offer anything better, so take advantage of that while you can. Until next time, we will talk to you. Breaking down the Pirate Football 2020 season as a whole, it's been fun to talk about another ECU win. They finished the season... Three and six overall, three and five in the American Athletic Conference with a 52-28 victory over the SMU Mustangs. We'll talk to you next time. I am Stephen Igo. sport has their big juicy controversy boxing has the mike tyson ear bite cycling has lance armstrong baseball has its steroid era curling has broomgate it's a story of broken relationships houses divided corporate rivalry and a performance enhancing broom it was a year i'd like to forget broomgate available now